Hello, everybody. It's Liam. And I'm Michelle Heron. And I'm Heather Holly. We're the host of Crime Over Wine Weekly, a new show keeping you up to date on the latest news in the true crime world. And we're here to remind you that the first episode of Crime Over Wine Weekly is out right now. And new episodes are coming out in this feed every single Sunday. Every week, we'll share the cases that are making headlines because we know you want to know as soon as we do. The first episode is out now wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you every single Sunday for your new true crime and wine obsession. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 55th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week, my guest co-host is a Chattanoogan, a podcaster, and a member of the Podnooga Podcasting Network. My guest co-host this week is Chip Alford. Hello, Chip. How are you doing? Hi, Liam. I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here and looking forward to hearing uh, another great true crime story. I'm kind of, yeah. a, I'm, I'm an addict. <laughs> oh, good. I didn't know that about you. There you yeah. go. Awesome. Well, well, you're in good company here. Okay, Chip. great. Absolutely. Yeah, excellent. So Chip is the host of Home Where You Belong, a podcast about helping people feel more at home in their living spaces, more connected in their communities, and more engaged in their relationships. So a pretty unique kind of carve out of the of the podcasting world, Chip, right? Like, what, what can you tell me a little more about this? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of podcasts about home, but a lot of those are like home design or architecture mm. or real estate. And I talk a little bit about that, but I'm more interested in, you know, what is it that truly makes people feel at home and wherever they live? Mm -hmm. I've interviewed people and that live in tree houses and tiny houses and traditional homes and RVs. Um, But yeah, it's, it's interesting. You said I'm a Chattanooga, which is true now, but this is actually the, I think it's the 27th different home that I've lived in. 27. Wow. So you know something about home, huh? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to learn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Oh, I would, I, maybe a whole different podcast, but, um, you know, I would love to know uh, uh, about all the different places you lived, because that sounds like you've got a whole bunch of stories, so. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's um, kick off with some wine here. Um, Okay. You know, that's my, that's my little niche part of of the podcasting world. So this week we are drinking Urgencies Chardonnay, a kiss of oak to balance bright fruits with a creamy texture that Chardonnay begs for, at least according (laughs) to the label. So, which is how I always get my, my, um, I, I get that question a lot about how do I come up with the little, you know, descriptions of the wines that I, that I, um, drink on this podcast. Um, I steal them directly from the vineyards because I am not one to mess up the branding of the, of that they have going on at all. So probably a good idea. Probably a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So Chip, are you, are you typically a wine drinker? What's your, what's your go-to? I, I don't know if I would say typically I like wine and, um, I was actually born in the wine country and. California, but we left when I was really young before I was um, able to drink. So, but yeah, I enjoy wine, but I wouldn't say I'm a wine expert or a real knowledgeable about it. Excellent. Well, we have some things to teach you on the podcast, Chip. Hang out out with me a little more often and and you'll get that pretty quickly. So I'll teach you about homes. You teach me about wine and it'll be a good exchange. (laughs) Deal. I need that. Deal, deal, deal. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Chip. We'll jump back into this thing. Um, Cheers to you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's good. 
good. A little, yeah. a little sweeter than I thought it would be. Uh, yeah, it is for sure. And it, but Chardonnay. I mean, this is like the most Chardonnay Chardonnay I've had in my <laughs> life for sure. I mean, oaky, oakiness is there. The butterness is there, uh, absolutely. And it's and it's a darker yellow too. It's a much more distinct mm. kind of yellow. Um, which um, you know, again, I'm not definitely not a sommelier, but I you know been able to kind of you know figure out that's that you know means some really strong butter flavors in there for sure. Okay. It's good. Yeah, and you know, this is it has like a, almost a little bit of smokiness mm. to it too. Are you getting that in the back yeah. of the mouth a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. That's really That's interesting. Good. It's it's very it's it's definitely a Chardonnay, but it's it's like a very distinct Chardonnay. Like almost like like around the edges there's a little something there that um that it's that like makes it stand out a good bit. Is this from California? I've not heard of this one before. Let's see. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's, uh, it's California Chardonnay. Yeah, California. East California. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Well, I I would say you know for a Chardonnay, this is definitely I you know if you if you typically go for Chardonnays, which you know I usually am like a Pinot Grigio, I tend to stay away from Chardonnays. Um, but you know this it gives a little bit of a different flavor. So if y'all are you know are go for Chardonnays because you like the traditional kind of flavors of a Chardonnay, maybe this isn't you know this isn't Mm. what you're going to be expecting. Um, but I would you know if you're looking for something a little bit different, a little bit outside the comfort zone here, I think this is kind of what you want to go for. Might be worth trying. Might be worth trying absolutely yeah absolutely well um speaking of something you know that that's a little bit outside my comfort zone um the case that i'm going to tell you about today chip um is very far out of out of everyone's comfort zone i mean not that any case that i talk about here is um but it's just you know it's just outside of people's reach um it feels like anyways um and but like a lot of the information that we're you know that we need to like solve this case it feels like is right there like right and like right at our fingertips um and so we have a lot to talk about today chip and so i hope you're hope you're ready i'm ready i'm definitely ready excellent well you know chip february is black history month and this month we are highlighting the disproportionate amount of attention black missing and murdered people tend to get compared to white missing and murdered people a young girl with a troubled past goes missing from her bedroom, but a flawed investigation puts a kink in the search for her from the very beginning. This week, I want to tell you the story of Yasmin Akri and the Lost Journal. Yasmin Akri grew up with a massively complicated background. She had grown up with her mother and her older brother, Demarcus, in Kentucky. She was, like, this really good student, motivated, and even competed in several spelling bees. She had been named the salutatorian of her eighth grade class. Even, I mean, she was, like, absolutely going places, Chip. And to make it even more impressive, this was all in spite of a really difficult home life. Yasmin's mother had a lot of issues related to drugs and some other things that we, you know, just simply won't be going into because, frankly, I don't believe it's relevant for this case. But point being, at a certain point, even Yasmin's mother came to the realization that she probably wasn't the best caretaker for her kids if she really wanted them to be given the best chance to succeed in life. And so Yasmin and Demarcus were put into the foster care system in Kentucky, and that's unfortunately when things start to take a turn for the worse for the siblings. Over the years, the siblings were in foster care. Yasmin had apparently experienced severe sexual abuse and as a result developed significant emotional and behavioral problems but I never really saw like what specifically that entailed like what kind of behavior she was showing just sounds awful I I hate that any 
kids have to go through that. But and it sounds like she had such a great start, too. Yeah, she sure did. And, you know, because oftentimes, right, like you see this kind of, you know, scenario where it's, you know, like, you know, people who are parents sure. shouldn't be parents. And so um, but they just don't give up because, you know, you feel this sense of responsibility and like you're torn constantly. And like to Yasmin's mom's credit, you know, even though she, you know, was not choosing the best lifestyle, um, she recognized that and saw that that her kids needed deserved better and needed better. And so she, you know, she she made, frankly, in my opinion, you know, maybe not the, you know, absolute best possible case scenario, but a better choice than what than what was going on at home. It sounds like she was trying to do the right thing. Right, right. And, you know, again, we're talking about like the early 2000s here, you know, unfortunate you know, um, you know, things happening in the foster care system um, at that time, not that they're much better these days. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not super surprised to hear what had unfortunately happened to Yasmin um, while she was there. Um, but again, all just very important because it's thought to, you know, you know, set up the stage for um, a very unfortunate turn for Yasmin. Um, and, you know, by 2001, Yasmin's birth mother had gotten in touch with caseworkers and told them that she wanted Yasmin and her brother Demarcus to go live with an aunt by May marriage who lived in Chicago. So they did. That year, Yasmin and Demarcus moved up to live with their Aunt Rose, who happily took them in and even formally adopted the both of them by 2006. Caseworkers who worked with the family through the transition to Rose's home described the situation as good and described Rose as a loving caretaker, but they were apparently unaware of some things happening behind closed doors. Again, the siblings had developed some pretty significant behavioral issues as a result of all of the jostling they had experienced between their mother's problems, abuse, and foster care, and now this massive move to a different city several hours away from home. Yasmin, the salutatorian and spelling bee pro, had let her grades slip a lot and had started showing signs of depression and really low self-esteem. Demarcus had been acting out too and had apparently had some really bad manners. Rose said Demarcus had become a, quote, real mischievous child. But as Demarcus later tells reporters, things had actually gotten really bad inside the home, like maybe Rose's account wasn't the full picture. Between Rose and her boyfriend Charles, the treat of the two siblings was rough, and they had gotten physical with them. Demarcus, who was 16 at the time, would step in to stand up for himself and for Yasmin, and when they would get into serious trouble, they would get locked in the basement. I never like to hear about anybody getting locked anywhere, but particularly in a basement, which yeah. um, you hear too often in, in true crime stories, I guess. But, yeah. Yeah, that's a terrible way to, to punish someone. Yeah, well, and, like, the basement you know, is, like, my understanding, like, not, like, you know, like, the, you know, cement blocks, that kind of thing. Like, it's a little bit more furnished, put together, like, livable, um, because, you know, okay. we're about to actually find out um, Yasmin ended up, like, moving her bedroom downstairs. Um, uh, and so it's okay. a little bit more put together, but still, like, to your but point, why like... Did she have to be why does she have to be locked? Yeah. Right, exactly. Like, you don't lock kids in a room. Yeah, like, that's the, right. the moral of the story here. And so, but, like, point being, I think, is that, you know, Ro, like, um, between, you know, what Rose said publicly about how, what what life was like at home and what DeMarcus said publicly about what was life was like at home, it's, like, a little conflicting in terms of, like, who was the actual problem? Like, was it DeMarcus? Was it, you know, Rose you know, and Charles sure. being a little bit overbearing? Um, but point being is, like, regardless of who's right and who's wrong here, like, it's just a bad 
bad situation um, and and about to get it even worse. So not good. In 2007, according to Rose, Demarcus's behavior had become too much for Rose and Charles, and they asked him to leave the house, and he did, leaving Yasmin alone in the house. And by this point, they had moved Yasmin to the basement by herself. According to the Chicago Tribune, the basement was just about as you would imagine. The only windows were made from this thick block glass, making the room very dark, and there were only these very small slots to allow fresh air into the room. Otherwise, it was, you know, again, just as anyone would think of of a basement being just, you know, really dingy and not exactly a place that you would choose to live unless maybe you have another choice not somewhere you want to hang hang out particularly if you're if you're locked down in there and correct i'm just thinking she must she must have felt really abandoned again i mean Mm -hmm. first her her mom um gives up custody i guess or care to foster care then they get moved to a, a big city a lot different probably than kentucky and now her brother is being asked to leave so right i could imagine she is really struggling yeah yeah i mean and easy to easy to imagine that right i mean that much you know and she's 15 at this point like that much jostling around is just not good for anybody um and it's just it you know you need you know talk about you know home where you belong chip like you need to find like a place that you know is consistent is you know feels good um especially in these kind of formative ages right sure absolutely and you're and you're you're treated well Right. Yeah, absolutely. But the violence in the house wasn't just between the adults and the kids. It was also apparently between Rose and Charles to Chip. In the weeks leading up to January of 2008, Rose had filed an order of protection against Charles after he had apparently hit her. Now, I never really saw much about what exactly happened in this whole interaction or if it had happened before, but I would imagine so. But it's pretty obvious that it didn't last very long, this order of protection anyways, because Charles had stayed in the house even after all of that and leading right up to a very important date in our story. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of um, protective orders that, you know, don't work (laughs) or are Mm -hmm. not successful in keeping the people away i mean it's you know i'm sure an important step to take yeah and but it doesn't doesn't guarantee protection yeah well and i don't know if if um you know to be fair like i don't know if if rose you know got rid of the order of protection like you know kind of the vibe i got and it's again certainly you know what when like i said before you know i'm sure that this had happened before in the house right because you know you don't just you know, first, you know, first time that that things get a little out of hand, you don't just, you don't call the police and get an order of protection, yeah. you know, logically, right? And so I'm Sounds a, like I'm there a, was some troubles, troubles in the home, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. And so, and so I'm, it builds up to this point. And so, you know, point being is maybe, you know, logically speaking, you know, she, you know, this all happened, you know, all, it got out of hand. She calls police, you know, she files an order for protection and then things cool down and they're like, okay, you know, that was a little bit of a dramatic step. We're cool. Everything's okay. Not to say that this is mo- the most healthy relationship after that, you know, but th- that's, that's kind of, that, that's kind of how I see this whole thing playing out mm. with the, the knowledge that, you know, Charles still hung around afterwards. And I think that happens a lot, at least oh, in a lot of the yeah. stories, you know, you know, it, it, you know, they keep thinking it's going to change. And so they give it another chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. In January of 2008, Yasmin was getting by, you know, considering the circumstances of her life. She was just about to start her first job and was really excited about an annual trip she was about to take part in through the local chapter of the YMCA. 
On January 15th, Rose had left for a trip to Elgin, Illinois, just outside of the city limits of Chicago, to visit her older daughter and her grandchildren, and she had plans to go to a, on a casino trip afterwards, too. Yasmin and Charles had both stayed behind at the house that day, though. That day was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and Yasmin had a half day at school. So after school, Yasmin had decided to go to her local YMCA. She ended up coming home around 8 o'clock that night, while Rose was still out at the casino on her trip. She did a load of laundry and then decided that she was going to go to bed. But the next day, January 16th, Charles woke up and was getting ready to get the day going and was going to take the trash out when he noticed something odd. He noticed that the two locks on the outside fence of the house were cut open. Now, they didn't live in the best neighborhood, so this wasn't all that alarming as far as I'm gathering, and I got the vibe that this has probably again happened before because it didn't really phase Charles all that much at first. But what definitely did phase him a little bit more, at least, was seeing that the lock that was on the door going down to Yasmin's room in the basement was cut off too. Crime Over Wine is sponsored by BetterHelp. As someone who's used therapy for years, I know that finding a therapist can sometimes be a stress on its own, juggling your full-time job, your family, your friends, your podcast, and trying to find the right therapist on top of that can almost feel impossible. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp matches you with a therapist that works for you on your terms. It's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to one of 33,000 licensed professional therapists in as little as a few days. And because finding a new therapist is a lot like finding a new bottle of wine, if you don't jive with your therapist, you can easily switch to a new one at no additional cost. You can get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash crimeoverwine. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crimeoverwine for 10% off your first month. Join over 4 million people who decided to get help and get happy with BetterHelp. Charles entered the basement, not really totally sure what he was about to find, but he did expect to see Yasmin because it wasn't time for her to go to school just yet, but she wasn't there. But nothing was really out of place in the room either. Her bed wasn't made and did appear to have been slept in. Nothing was missing besides her coat, pajamas, and boots, as far as he could tell, which, again, weren't necessarily things that stood out directly to Charles if they did at all, because, you know, those are things that you take when you leave the room, right? Right. But what was in the room was Yasmin's glasses, apparently. But because of the state of the room, Charles assumed that Yasmin had likely just decided to leave for school early that morning. And so no, you know, dirt off his back as far as he's concerned. I think we all, I mean, you probably always want to default to an innocent explanation or a good Mm -hmm. explanation, not expect the worst, right? But I don't know, maybe I've listened to so much true crime, I would would expect the worst when I think. But yeah, I mean, usually if you, you just... It makes sense that he wouldn't necessarily yeah. be alarmed right at first. Yeah. Well, and again, we talk about this so many times in the podcast, right? Like, you know, the the default setting for so many people is that, you know, this must be an innocent explanation. As you said, you know, this it's, you know, it's it's been fine before. So it's been, it's yeah. fine this time, too. Um, and certainly in this type of situation, right, where you have a, you know, semi, you know, grown woman, you know, young woman who, you know, is is living in the basement, com- can come and go as she pleases. Clearly, because if she stays, you know, at the YMCA until 8 
o'clock at night. You know, it didn't really seem as though anyone was really concerned about her, you know, being out, you know, out, out, you know, doing things until late that night. Um, and again, you know, you know, even though again, like that her, you know, grades were kind of slipping, she was still like a good kid all in all. And so it's like, it's kind of like that trust of like, okay, well, you know, she must just have had things to do, you know, whatever. Like, and, and also too, like it's, it's the mom's boyfriend. So it's like, it's not like if she had somewhere to be early, it's not like that would be the first person I would think so anyways, that she would tell, like she would tell Rose, I would imagine anyways, that like, Hey, um, you know, I have somewhere to be early that day. And so maybe it just wasn't that much of a, of a, you know, of an alarm bell for that reason, because like, why would I know unless, unless they're closer than what I'm, you know, picturing here. Yeah. I'm guessing there wasn't a note. She didn't leave a note anywhere, I guess. Nope. Nope, nothing like that. Yeah, again, the only thing that was, like, kind of odd was that she left her glasses behind, which, again, like, to me, you know, I, you know, you, Chip, you wear glasses, right? Like, do you go anywhere without your glasses, (laughs) right? So I try not to. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, you know, certainly, you know, if you, if I don't know how, how much you needed them, but like, you know, if you're going out, you need to be able to see. And so you would think that, that would be one of the things that you would definitely make sure you bring. Yeah, if absolutely. You're, if you're going out um, a little bit early. Um, although I do know people who, who forgot their glasses quite often, which is <laughs> interesting to me, <laughs> yeah. but you know, whatever, whatever works for you. Um, you know, Charles says he called Rose to tell her what had happened to the locks on the gate and on the door to the basement, but he didn't get through to Rose at first, and Rose later claims to have never gotten the phone call at all. Mm. Later that day, Rose returned home, and that's when Charles told her about the locks and mentioned that he didn't see Yasmin that morning, who, by the way, still was not home. Rose told Charles to replace the locks and the gate because, again, they are operating on this assumption that this was some new neighborhood vagrant who broke through the gate. Nothing else was broken or missing, so they weren't really all that worried about it. But as the evening went on with no sign of Yasmin, they started to worry about her. And suddenly, things start to feel a little eerie for them. They call Yasmin's school, and they find out that she was absent that day. And so by 7 o'clock that night, they decide they need to call police to report Yasmin missing. I'm glad they did it more quickly. Sometimes I think people wait wait longer, thinking they have to wait mm-hmm. so long, which isn't true. But yeah, right. um, I can feel that sick feeling you probably get in the pit of your stomach when somebody isn't home by a certain time and you start worrying. Yeah. And to that point too, like I was wondering because the night before she got home around eight, they said, and so now it's like seven o'clock and they're already a little worried. Um, And so I'm like, interesting that, you know, that already set off an alarm bell, you know, even though it wasn't even like the latest that she's ever been home. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that is. That is interesting. Yeah. But also, I mean, I guess if they already knew that she wasn't at school, like, you know, they're probably operating off off of the assumption that, like, they hadn't heard from her since the night before. And so it's probably, it's been, you know, a day. Longer since I've seen her, yeah. Correct. So when police show up to the house, they all see exactly what I had just described to you. The cut locks, but the ones on the gates had already been replaced by Charles. They also see Yasmin's bedroom in the basement and don't really see anything out of place. Again, it looked like a mostly typical teenage girl's basement bedroom. And at this point, it's clear that they are operating off of the assumption that Yasmin was a runaway. She is a troubled teenage girl, plus they had all sorts of records of the problems inside of the house, and so they end up leaving the house without taking any evidence. Not taking any fingerprints, no DNA samples were collected, and the lock that was cut off the door was just left at the property Mm, that doesn't that doesn't sound very like very much uh was done by the police 
at the beginning. Nope. And like, again, like it just like, listen, like I'm just going to get hop my soapbox here for a second. So like chip, you know, sip your, sip your glass of wine away because I'm going <laughs> to, you're, you're, I'm going to be talking for a while here. But okay. Like, you know, it just always blows my mind how like, you know, you have a, a missing person regardless of what age they are, but especially if they're a, a, a minor and you're not operating off of the assumption right off of the bat, or at least treating it like as though it could be, a crime scene, right? Like, as though it could be something a little bit more malicious or criminal here, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I just don't understand, like, what harm would it have, have done to anybody to dust the freaking door for fingerprints and take the lock in for, for, uh, as evidence, and you can always return it afterwards if it turned out to be nothing. Absolutely, yeah. And, like, and like you know, like, if she ran away, she didn't cut the gate, she didn't cut the locks, like, why would she had a key to the to the lock to her yeah. room, I'm sure. And if she was running away, she probably would have t- taken her glasses. Like, precisely, exactly. And, again, she wasn't, like, she wasn't at school, and, like, all, all these, like, again, I don't, I don't get it, like, it, it just, it just, it, it just feels very lazy to me right and it's just it's just so unfortunate that um that this happens so many times in these types of situations um and again certainly happens more often in the case of you know young black you know um boys and girls who who go missing um because they just automatically assume that they're just up to no good um that's what it seems like to me anyways yeah i'd be interested to see if they had left the lock on on the door down to her room in the basement if the police saw a lock on the door or, or I, yeah. bet he, I bet he took it off because I think that would have kind of raised an alarm bell to me if I'd seen somebody had a you know teenager's room and you had a oh, padlock yeah. on I, it. Yeah. I didn't even think about that that's so true yeah. well I guess it was it was the 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 um the door to the basement from the outside uh, so okay. maybe that helps they a little more go. so yeah. yeah so so I'm assuming anyways there was an entrance um, you know, up in from without having to go outside. Okay. Um, but but that those are the type of locks we're talking about. Is that is the is you know from if is is if you're entering the house from the outside and want to get directly to the basement, that's that's how you get there. Um, and that was a lock that that was cut off. But still, like you know, a little like iffy. I don't really know if I hundred percent like that. But like maybe for no, security, yeah. like okay. Um, but also going back, right? Like the the locks and the gates were never collected because. Um, because um, Charles had already replaced this, which again, like, like not that I'm necessarily blaming him for this part, but like that is evidence that is gone, right? Because like, evidently, you know, if, if somebody, assuming that somebody cut through all of that, there, those are two pieces of of really critical critical evidence that probably have fingerprints, and they are now gone. Um, gone. And so I'm, you know, it just it just feels like again that deserves a little bit more questioning, considering the violent history, or at least from from the records that you're seeing, um, that that goes on in the house. Like you would think that you would want, you know, to to talk about that with Charles, um, you know, or at least, and make sure that you know exactly what happened there. But like that didn't even really seem to be happening here. Yeah, I wonder if they knew. I mean, I don't. I wonder if the police that responded had responded there before or actually knew about mm-hmm. the, the the history. Yeah. Well, and that, that's the vibe I'm getting, right? And, like, that that's, like, number one thing, at least I would hope so, um, you know, in, in these types of situations, um, that you check to see if there's a history of violence in the house, specifically history of violence directed toward the two adopted children who have had caseworkers go to the house there before yeah. multiple times. Um, and and even to the point where like they had to um, had to develop like a safety plan for the house caseworkers did um, because of because there was you know so many times where they were called out um, to the house uh, on violent circumstances and so they developed like this plan to um, to like protect 
Yasmin and because there because she was like exhibiting behaviors, um, you know, outside of school or outside of home uh, too. So it sounds like so. this should definitely have been on their radar then. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's not totally clear what Rose and Charles thought of the idea that Yasmin was a runaway at first, but I have to imagine they probably believed it like a little bit. But police start asking Yasmin's friends from school if they had heard from Yasmin and they actually said that they had. That Yasmin called them to tell them that she was running away from home, but they wouldn't elaborate any more than that. So police hear that and decide to get a hold of Yasmin's phone records. If Yasmin was calling friends, maybe she was calling other people and they could trace that call to where Yasmin was staying. But when they pull those phone records, they see something pretty alarming. It's nothing about where the phone calls are coming from. No, not at all. In fact, it's the fact that the phone calls weren't being made at all. Wow. So wait, are you saying the friends were lying? Yeah. So police find no evidence that supports the friends' stories about Yasmin calling them and telling them that she was running away from home. And when police approach them about what they found, they immediately recant their original statements about Yasmin being a runaway. Wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Why would they? Why would they say that? Well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I don't. Well, no spoiler. Actually, we really don't um, because that's uh, pretty much the end of that. But like, uh, yeah, it, that infuriates me, right? Because why? Like, why even make that up? Like, it, it just it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Unless, I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe she had like expressed interest to her friends about like you know on really bad days about like oh I'm just gonna run away and so maybe this was just them you know thinking that they were helping her or like right. thinking that they were you know that. That that assuming that that was what happened because of this whole because of what she said to them in the past, I have no nothing to to suggest that that's actually true. Yeah. I'm just assuming here, um, just because of kind of what's going on at home. Um, but yeah, that it's it, it that doesn't make any sense to me. And like again, like now we're we're you know it, considering where we're at in the investigation, this is like a day or two afterwards. Critical times in the, in these kinds of investigations, and so this you know delays it that much more. Um, which again, every single hour, every single minute, um, in in um, missing persons investigations involving minors is critical. It's an obstacle you didn't you didn't need and don't want to have to deal with Correct. in an already challenging situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, once police and the family find out about this, their alarm bells go off and they are worried sick. And now they have lost precious days in trying to track down where Yasmin went. And they are worried and maybe even convinced that something bad did indeed happen to her. So on January 19th, 2008, three days after Yasmin was reported missing, investigators return to the house and collect the cut lock and any other evidence that they can find at the house and say that it was evident that the basement had been entered using force. But even though it was just a few days, those few days were critical ones in a missing persons investigation, and if they got anything good from that search, they never talked about it publicly. Yeah, and how did they not notice that the basement had been entered using force before, or did they notice it and just not just not reference that because that I mean that's a huge red flag (laughs) I agree yeah and like I don't know maybe it's just like the fact that now they're thinking that this is that something a little bit more mischievous happened that like now they're looking looking at it from a different lens of like oh no this was definitely like a force situation here 
I don't know. I mean, it just, the, it doesn't feel right at all. And like, maybe, and here's my only other like thought process here is that like, maybe when they first showed up to the house, they, you know, they, you know, they didn't even go up to the, to the door outside because maybe that didn't really seem important. Like maybe they entered in through the, through the door that, you know, you could, that is accessed through the inside. And so maybe they didn't even look. Um, but, but again, like just, it just feels cause like, I would imagine, right. If it's obvious that someone broke into the house, three days later it's certainly obvious the day yeah. of and so Absolutely. i i just i don't know i don't know chip it just it feels it just feels sloppy to me and like and like we see this all the time right with like people like the officers who are called out to the scene first like aren't trained homicide investigators or trained you know missing persons investigators they're just they're beat cops right and so um it just maybe they're just not even really thinking that way like they're not trained to um, yeah. so I don't know. I, I don't know. It's a tough one, but I, but I just know with the, if they had any indication of the kind of history that had been happening right. in that home, I, you know, I would think I would err on the side of, you know, being extra cautious and yeah. really looking. Yeah, you would think so. But again, obviously that's not really what happened here. And, you know, that, you know, whole, you know, silence, you know, unsurety that went on for weeks, which turned into months, which turned into more than a year, Chip. The family, which even included DeMarcus and Yasmin's biological mother, had expressed real frustration during this time about the state of the police investigation into Yasmin's disappearance, and they did so publicly. They believed that police did not take Yasmin's disappearance seriously from the jump, knowing her background and the state of violence in the house, which both Rose and DeMarcus were talking about with reporters throughout this time, hurling some pretty intense accusations at each other about goings-on inside the home through the media. And frankly, they had a really good point, in my opinion, and the way this investigation was handled tends to be even more true about young black women who go missing. According to the Girls Like Me project, missing black girls make up about 14% of missing persons cases in Chicago, despite only making up about 7% of the population of the city. In all, one in three missing people in the United States are black, despite making up only about 14% of the country's population. And of that chip, only 7% of media coverage about missing people are stories about missing people of color. That's a, those are sad and sobering statistics, but frankly, not, not too surprising, I'm afraid. No. No, and like again, like I knew kind of anecdotally about you know about this, right? Because it's it's no secret, like you were saying. Um, but I mean, just to see them like right in front of my face, I was like, wow. And like again, like like kind of sidebar here, you know, again hopping back over my soapbox here. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons you know why I started this podcast, right? Because I you know I want to do my part to like you know minimize that as much as possible. Um, because I know that I can do it, and so um, so I I mean, it just it it is a, it is sad. And like the like just the the disproportionate number up of like of of people of you know for a variety of reasons of you know of people of missing people being you know being black African American people of color um you know is is sad and disheartening um but the fact that the the lack of attention they get you know which is you know trends down just doesn't feel right it just it just it hurts my heart and and what what doesn't get seen and heard is is easily ignored or you know yeah. put on the back Not burner known. yeah right absolutely right. yeah absolutely 
Well, on the first anniversary of Yasmin's disappearance, the family pulls together a press conference with advocates where they say flat out that they believe that Yasmin was kidnapped, and possibly even worse. So as they waited more for some sign of Yasmin or some movement in the investigation to find the person responsible for doing something bad to her, May 2009 rolls around, and police announce the arrest of someone who was right under their noses the whole time. Get ready for that big test with Study.com. Study.com offers learning materials and test prep, even LSAT study prep guides for all of my legal nerds listening. Unfortunately, there aren't any wine study guides, and believe me, I did check. Listeners can get 30% off their first three months of any subscription level using the promo code CRIMEOVERWINE. Again, that's promo code CRIMEOVERWINE, no spaces, for 30% off your first three months at Study.com. Learn faster, stay motivated, study smarter with our sponsor, Study.com. All right, Chip. So um, I like to ask at this point, you know, if the wine has had a good amount of time to breathe. Um, and so I'm wondering what kind of flavors you're getting. Are you enjoying it more or enjoying it less? I don't know. I think I may be enjoying it a little bit more. It was. It seemed pretty pretty sweet at first, which mm-hmm. I typically don't like. But I don't know if I'm just getting used to it or Correct. it's just a little smoother. Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm kind of I'm kind yeah. of liking it. Yeah, I also like it. Yeah, and it, you're definitely right. It's definitely it's it's softening a lot, and yeah. it's um it's getting a lot smoother too. Um and and I'm because we were talking at the beginning of the episode about like how like there's a lot of flavors I was getting mm. kind of around the edges, like a little bit of like aftertaste and a lot in the back of the mouth. I, it's evening a lot out a lot more for me because I'm getting a lot more of a fuller kind of full mouth kind of feel to it. I don't taste the smokiness as much as I did at first. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, but I'm getting a lot more buttery though mm. too all at the same time because it, it like is mixing a lot more like in terms of the flavor palettes here i need i need to take a wine description class and know how mm. know, know how to better describe it <laughs> yeah yeah i know you know i i you know keep saying that i need to i need to know more about what i'm talking about which i feel like i have like a good amount of knowledge but sounds like maybe it. like a little bit more um but like i feel like if i get any like more knowledgeable i feel like i feel like i need to keep it down here for for my for for keep people who are listening to this yeah keep it really simple because i feel like that like there are so many podcasts out there or so many you know outlets out there where you can really get into the weeds of wine and i don't really feel i feel like this needs to be a little bit more accessible i feel like we're we need to we need to stay on a level of like people just really understanding and maybe you learn a thing or two about about how to appreciate the wine absolutely that sounds like a good approach learned a lot you know (laughs) um all right well chip let's get back to this story because when we just left police were about to make an arrest do you want to know what happens yes i want to know what what turn of events happened here yeah well in may of 2009 police announced the arrest of jimmy terrell smith he's 35 years old but he wasn't arrested on any charges having to do with Yasmin's case. Okay, interesting. But why Why was he arrested and what? why are you bringing this up? How does this relate then? Well, Jimmy, who goes by Terrell, was arrested for raping five women between the years of 2006 and 2009, including two victims who were 14 years old mm. or right around the age of Yasmin. Now, Terrell is a bad dude who had been arrested a total of six times in his life for some nonviolent crimes and some violent ones, mostly violent ones, including attempted murder. 
He had been described in court records as being a, quote, brutal predator. Now, to be clear, Terrell was not accused of sexually assaulting Yasmin, but he did know her. He lived upstairs. Terrell had been living in the second floor apartment of the building Rose, Charles, Yasmin, and Demarcus lived in, but he actually used to live right next to Yasmin's basement bedroom. Terrell's father was a longtime friend of Rose's, and he was living in the basement next to Yasmin's room when Terrell had gotten out of prison. And when Terrell moved in, Rose actually approached them and told them that they had to move upstairs to get them as far away from the kids as possible, specifically Yasmin. And although they moved upstairs no problem, it didn't keep Terrell and Yasmin away from each other. No, they had actually been seen hanging out together a lot. According to reporting in the Chicago Tribune, Terrell had apparently been seen giving Yasmin beer and other alcohol on multiple occasions, and at least once he was seen stroking her hair. Family members had also told reporters that he had made several sexual advances toward her. And again, to remind everybody, she's a teenager, he's in his 30s. Oh my god. And how long did it take them to find this guy? I mean, why didn't they know about this guy? It seemed like that would be yeah. one of the first things. Are there any sexual, you know, people on the sexual predators list or anything in the area? Yeah. This guy was like right next oh. door. Oh, yeah, in the area. He was literally on top of on top of them right yeah, yeah. well the, you know the family actually did know about that about him uh chip but for reasons that aren't totally clear the family only tells police that he lived in their building after he was arrested despite them clearly being very aware of his violent history but like maybe they assumed you know kind of what you're talking about on um, their chip you know police had already known about terrell you know like did their freaking jobs but again it's not entirely clear here yeah that just seems like something that should have been put out there right away and looked at yeah. if it's not if it's not a problem then you can mark it off a list but that's definitely one that would be at the Correct. top of the list i think yeah yeah, and, like, again, order of operations here, right? Like, yeah. that is, you know, you have a missing minor. Yeah. You would think that, you know, you would at the very least, the next door you know, neighbors. look at... Yeah, the next you would yeah. <laughs> even if even if next door neighbors yeah. is like Jim and Nancy, right? Exactly. Like you like you would think that you know, that you know regardless of, of their of their criminal history that they that you would at least knock on the door and say, hey, did mm. you see anything? Um, but that didn't necessarily happen. Um, and like again, specifically the fact that Terrell ha was was put away for being sexually involved with girls Yasmin's age. Like you would think that like that would be a red flag, but like Absolutely. I guess not. So yeah, again, infuriating. But crazy can't, can't do anything about it now, I guess. But, you know, Terrell does deny at first having anything to do with Yasmin's disappearance, although he does admit to knowing her and hanging out with her on multiple occasions, which, again, let's rewind here. Regardless of, of whether or not she disappeared, he's 30. She's 15. Not cool, right? And in a move you don't see all that often from law enforcement, in August of 2009, the Chicago Police Department publicly admits to a really poor investigation that led to real problems in the initial search for Yasmin. In a letter the superintendent of the police department sends to Rose, he admits to misconduct and wrongdoing in the first days of the investigation. Chip, I'm hoping you can read this line from the letter. Wow, it's kind of amazing to have a letter like that at all, but yeah, I'll be glad to. Yeah. Um, all evidence was evaluated, and it has been determined that misconduct on the part of the department members has been proven. It appears that some officers made a mistake. We'll deal with that, but I think it is safe to say that that particular incident had no impact on the efforts of our detectives in locating that young lady. Um, well, that's nice to say, but... Um, 
Can you back that up it with true? facts and information? Yeah. Correct. Well, and like, how do you know that's yeah. true? That like, if you didn't like know, like, like take things a hundred percent seriously from the jump that you wouldn't have, have at least found a clue or two. You know what I mean? And like, I don't even really buy that a hundred percent. Like the, like the, like the, cause again, you didn't like, you didn't collect the lock. You didn't collect the evidence. Okay, cool. Like that probably wouldn't have had much of an impact. I would probably venture a guess, but like certainly like, knocking next door yeah. to like ask questions and like knowing who was living there certainly would have at least you know set off an alarm bell or two and like to the point where like we could have at you know gotten a little bit closer to something it definitely some point, definitely right? should have absolutely yeah. right well the police department makes clear after the letter was released that yasmin's case is a missing persons investigation not an investigation into a runaway teenager and that line the way that the investigators handled the investigation had no impact on the search for yasmin may have been met pretty well at first but that didn't last for very long because years go by in the search for Yasmin with still no significant leads and the whole time Rose and the rest of the family are keeping an open line of communication with local news reporters who have been covering the case pretty closely specifically since the police department admitted that they messed up big time and in early 2011 Rose sits down for an interview with reporters from the Chicago Tribune and she's open about her frustrations with the investigation and her desire to find Find out the truth about what happened to Yasmin. And she's open enough with this reporter that she says that she's confident Terrell had something to do with Yasmin's disappearance. She also allows the reporter to go into Yasmin's bedroom, which hadn't really been touched since she disappeared, not all that much anyways. And, you know, they she allows them to look around and she becomes even more confident that Terrell was involved when that reporter comes across something that had been missed by family members and investigators for almost four years. Crime Over Wine is proud to support Emancipat. Today, there are over 60 million beloved pets across the country whose families cannot access or afford veterinary care. With your help, Emancipat is changing that. Emancipat is a nonprofit that offers low-cost vet care for those who need it most. They rely on donations to keep their costs low for pet families across the country. You can support Emancipat's mission at emancipat.org. In an article published in the Chicago Tribune in March of 2011, the reporter writes about finding Yasmin's journal tucked away underneath her mattress. The Chicago Tribune ends up publishing the relevant parts of the journal. Now, most of the journal is typical teenage girl stuff, not very interesting in terms of this criminal investigation. However, there are two mentions of someone named Terrell. How could they have missed that? <laughs> Wow, yeah. do, what do the entries say? Well, to be clear, in the entries, Yasmin spells Terrell's name a little bit differently. She spells Terrell's name T-Y-R-E-L-L, -L, whereas Terrell Smith spells his name T-E-R-R-E-L-L. -L. But based on the contents of the journal entries, reporters and investigators both say it's obvious that she is indeed referring to Jimmy Terrell Smith. But the crux of the journal entries are this. There are two mentions of Terrell, one titled, I Miss Terrell, and the other refers to him saying, quote, I miss his sexy ass. Wow. 
So they're definitely sure that she or that she was referring to that same Terrell. Yeah. So I don't really know a hundred percent, you know, like what exactly was said, but I'm imagining it was probably referring to him living next door and that kind of thing. And so point being, it was it was like based yeah. on like like what she wrote in the journal, like they said for sure that they were talking about him. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem like a a real common name anyway, but I don't know, maybe it is. Sure. Um, but w- when were these entries made in, in relation to when she actually went missing? Well, they were made pretty shortly before Yasmin's disappearance, Chip. Mm-hmm. And so reporters do turn the journal over to investigators, but they are also pretty certain who they need to talk to next. And it's Terrell Smith. He agrees to speak to reporters from jail where he was serving a, ready for this, 100-plus year sentence for the rape charges and for attempting to hire a hitman to murder the judge who convicted him. That's crazy. That's crazy. Bad dude, right? Just bad dude. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and again, like, we gloss over that, but, like, it's not super relevant to this case, but, like, okay, sure. Like, just note that in the back of your head, I guess. But, you know, during that interview, Terrell admits to knowing what happened to Yasmin, but he refused to elaborate any further on that during the interview with reporters. I'm surprised he even talked to the reporters about it. Maybe he's somebody who likes to see his name in print or or whatever, but if I was, you know, serving a 100-plus-year sentence on rape charges I, I don't know that i don't want to be talking about that um whole situation yeah. but i guess he did yeah that certainly you know again if i don't know if he's up for parole at uh, anyway but like i but i say i try to imagine, be helpful you know or... uh, correct yeah yeah exactly so maybe i, I don't know it, it could be couldn't be but like who who even freaking knows but like again so we kind of gloss over this but like let's go back to the, the to the journal um because in like again like like you search through like like just knowing what we know about the about the flawed part of this investigation from like the very possible jump like the fact that you didn't even like lift up the mattress just feels That's so wrong crazy. to me because and like not to say that they could have even imagined that like anything good could have been under there but like it could have been you know it, it just it just feels again from the very jump that like this that this wasn't done the way that it should have been because you missed like critical incriminating evidence that like directly ties you know a a missing person to a violent criminal yeah i just that just still blows my mind i can't i cannot believe they missed that yeah yeah so you know on march 4th 2011 you know they take this and run with it i guess just days after the article publishing yasmin's journal and terrell's eerie statement about yasmin's disappearance police end up executing a search warrant on a home that he had lived in with a girlfriend between 2008 and 2009 now if they find anything significant from this search it's not totally clear but according to reporting in the chicago tribune investigators end up leaving with at least four bags of evidence in the meantime terrell agrees is also to speak to Rose from behind bars. And to Rose, he's a bit more open than he was to reporters. According to what Rose told reporters, Terrell says that Yasmin had committed suicide. And although he swears he didn't kill her, he does admit that he did help her carry it out and then got rid of her body afterwards by taking her to a house and burning her body in a garbage can. But he didn't have anything to do with it. It sounds like he had a yeah. sounds like he had a lot to do with it, even if he even if he hadn't right. actually killed her. But that that's a really strange story. He, right? Yeah, I'm not buying it. <laughs> I'm not buying it 100. percent But like, still, like you admitted to a crime. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, regardless of whether or not you actually like 
like ended her life like you still like aided in all of this which like even if they wanted it like that's still not legal yeah so it just it just it doesn't feel right and like and then you didn't tell you didn't tell anybody about it for you know they were they knew they were looking for her for years yeah exactly right and like you you right you you could have fessed up you could have you could have said you know hey you're like i know exactly what happened to her you know this is where she is and like pure like before we even get there right like you could have not burned her body right and like you know and then that would have you know really easily you know brought a whole lot of people closure and you know ended this whole thing a whole whole lot longer longer ago than what it did so that just doesn't feel like the right move to me at all obviously just he just treated her like garbage right basically again if we're even buying this story i don't think i am at all i mean maybe that's how he how he got rid of her after he killed her assuming he killed her um but i just i you know i just don't know if i really fully like that it doesn't it doesn't make sense really no it really doesn't now you know uh, well but with that uh, it makes sense and i guess in the sense of like how how there's been no sign of her i guess right because like that is a real good way to get rid of a body unfortunately um so yeah i don't really know but you know there's no evidence to support it though regardless chip and the family is not buying the suicide story at all they are convinced just as much as we are that yasmin was murdered and that terrell did it but again there's no evidence that she was even dead let alone that terrell killed her so as 2011 turned into 2012 and 2012 turned into 2013, the family and invested community members held vigils on what would have been Yasmin's 20th birthday and on the fifth anniversary of her disappearance and other important dates to help keep her story alive and to try and convince someone with critical information to come forward. In the interim, there were hundreds of reported sightings of Yasmin that stretched from the west side of Chicago to Michigan to New York City, but none of those reported sightings panned out and they just complicated the state of this investigation and as yasmin's case got more and more complicated rose's life did too she ended up dying without fully knowing the truth about yasmin she died in 2014 from complications from diabetes and kidney issues yasmin's birth mother had also passed at some point throughout this whole entire investigation again for reasons we're not going to totally get into but it wasn't natural let's put it that way so they they still don't know what happened there's there no answers in the case today oh no today you know there are still no clear answers chip as to what happened to yasmin akri there is a ten thousand dollar reward for information that leads to yasmin's location or an arrest in her disappearance so if you know anything call the chicago police department at 312-744-8266 and we are also going to put that number on our website and in our show notes too but Chip, unfortunately, you know, until we figure out exactly what happened here, that is all that we have for you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, you know, kind of a hard pivot rake in here toward the end of like a really, you know, sad story. But that's kind of where things lie. Unfortunately, we still don't have clear answers about this whole thing. Yeah, so that is a very sad story. And then unfortunately, there's there's way too many stories like that. So yeah. it's good that you're giving yeah. um, some attention to it. So yeah. as you saw in the in the story, uh a media person made a difference and right. found a key piece. So it does right. happen. Right. Well, and that's, that's kind of the thing. Is, so again, that's why we're talking about it today, right? Because again, Black History Month, Um, you know, this isn't exactly what you think of as Black History, but it, unfortunately, it's a really dark part of, of Black History, right? Uh, because there are all sorts of cases that, you know, involve 
you know, again, kind of like the statistics we talked about up at the, uh, you know, closer to the middle of this episode, um, there are all sorts of cases that just did not get the attention that they deserved right from the very jump, did not get the proper, you know, you know, uh, um, you know, thorough thoroughness, you know, to to really figure out what what exactly happened here. Um, And and again, it just happens in 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 a disproportionate number of people of color and like you know the, these types of, of cases you know really you know um just kind of go by the wayside unfortunately and it just is chalked up to there are assumptions made about people and there are you know there are you know write-offs made about people um in these types of situations based on you know your your you know prejudicial thoughts um and that and it's really unfortunate and and it's just it this is you know the example where there are real life consequences um involved in you know significant bias biases that take place and, and assumptions that are made and you just can't make assumptions about people when it comes to missing persons investigations or homicide investigations absolutely absolutely well thanks so much for including me in the story i, I hope that um that um somebody will come forward and share some information that's helpful um it's really made me think a lot about um you know as i was listening to you talk about the story i mean home life was one of the critical um, issues. I mean, the difficulty of the home life yeah. that she grew up in, yeah. you know, whether that contributed to her um, going missing or not, I'm sure it definitely added to that whole difficult situation. So, um, yeah. yeah, thanks thanks for having me on. And, and if anyone's interested in hearing more about um, home life and what makes people feel at home, I would love for them to check out my website at homewhereyoubelong.com or listen to the podcast by that same name wherever you stream podcast awesome when do you when do you usually drop episodes it's usually every other tuesday um i try to drop at least two a month okay awesome excellent well thanks chip i appreciate you um so much for coming on um and thank you all so much for listening to this really important case we're going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too and if you were just loving this podcast and you're just looking for a way to tell everyone and anyone about it the best way to help people discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now so make sure you follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week here's a quick sneak peek hello everybody it's liam and i'm claire molay next week i am re-entering the crime vineyard for a case of a tragic death with far-reaching consequences what really happened to alonzo brooks and next week we'll need your help to solve this one we'll tell you all about it next wine wednesday on another episode of crime over wine Proud member of the Podnuga Network.